Welcome to this episode of Van Attorneys Legal Pad Podcast. This is a podcast by Van Attorneys PLLC, a law firm of attorneys licensed to practice law in the state of North Carolina. The content of this podcast is not to be considered as legal advice for any particular situation or case, and this podcast does not constitute creating an attorney-client relationship. So we're going to be talking today about uh, sending the litigation packet uh, to your attorney to start the uh, legal process if uh, you have a, a need to hire an attorney. So Ian Richardson and I are in here together, so we're looking forward to uh, talking with y'all about this today. And uh, so before we get that is our normal um, uh, procedure. We try to pick a, a legal topic that's current, that's going on around uh, the community that's hopefully impactful to us all. And uh, currently we are, uh, we've chosen the uh, United States Supreme Court ruling regarding the Electoral College. Uh, now, before y'all fall asleep on thinking about constitutional law, uh, Ian, I'm not sure about you, but I remember when I was in law school constitutional law, I remember, I thought, I'm going to remember as much as I need for the uh, exam, for the bar exam, and then I'm forgetting it. I don't know if you, if you felt that way, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I was the exact same way. And uh, the older I get, the more I realize how important our Constitution is, um, and how, and actually how uh, in-depth it really is. But So, recently on July 6, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the electors who formally select the president uh, can be required by the state they represent to cast their ballots for the candidate who won their state's popular vote. Now, you know, sometimes some people may look at that and go, well, yeah, that's been the law forever, right? Um, But that's one of the reasons it was before the Supreme Court. Um, something that was really interesting about this decision, it was a unanimous decision, uh, which, again, is pretty, pretty impactful, I think. Uh, this decision is a direct look at the U.S. state constitution, um, so or the United States constitution. So um, it's, we're looking at that, trying to figure out uh, how that's to be um, elected. And the president is elected uh, based off of the Electoral College. So what happened is the justices rejected the claim that the electors have a right under the Constitution to defy their states and vote for the candidate of their choice. Um, Many of you have heard of the electoral college system. That has probably become a lot more uh, present in today's language than it has in the the most recent past. Uh, But it's a system created by the founding fathers. Uh, And there have been some questions regarding the electoral college vote certainly in the last 15 or so years. Frankly, most people are unfamiliar with the Electoral College vote, and some don't even understand how it works. Um, In two of the past five presidential elections, the winner came in second in the popular or national vote, but nonetheless won a combination of states that yielded more electoral votes. And today, many scholars agree that the dispute that was before the Supreme Court could have injected an additional element of uncertainty into the presidential race. Last year, uh, Congress, or excuse me, last year, the U.S. 10th Circuit Court in Denver uh, surprised the election officials when it ruled that the Constitution as written in 1787 actually assumed that the state's electors were free to vote for their favorite candidate. Uh, now, like many of the issues addressed by the founding fathers of our country, they actually thought through many of these issues we debate today. I would, we would encourage you to, if you have never have, if you've never read the Constitution, pull it out and go read it. 
it really is an amazing document. Look at the history of how they drafted it and how they debated it. Um, and this, and even on this issue with the Electoral College, I, I actually dug in a little bit and read a little history of how they debated this issue. And it's really, it's very interesting. And they thought through it, right? They, they didn't just say, okay, let's just flip a coin and see which wins, right? But they really thought through it. Um, so again, looking at this, the constitutional scholars say that although the electors may have had an independent vote at the time of the nation's founding, they've been required since the early 1800s to vote in line with the wishes of the party whose presidential candidate won the state's vote. Um, how they elect, how we elect the president is really important. Uh, obviously that's an understatement, just like many of the other issues our country has founded uh, upon. As indicated by a review of the votes, in nearly every election, there are a handful of rogue electors who always ignore their commitment and cast a vote different from their state's vote. These decisions may not be popular at home, but thankfully these votes have most have been ignored and never really made a difference in the outcome. Um, most states actually have laws or rules that require the electors to abide by their pledges and to follow the state's wishes. And the Supreme Court agreed to hear two cases on this issue. One actually came from the state of Washington and another one came from Colorado. So the state election officials had feared that if the Supreme Court ruled that electors were free to defy the state, it could actually trigger enough defections to potentially upset the outcome of the presidential uh, race, especially if it's a close race. During the argument before the court in May of this year, several justices said that they feared it would actually create chaos in November if the electors were not bound by the state uh, or its laws and, and how the, the popular vote turned out. So for now, the U.S. Supreme Court has set the stage for the next presidential election. We're all going to wait and see how this turns out. Now, again, we offer this not from a political standpoint, not from a, you know, a party standpoint, but more really more or less just from a standpoint of what the Constitution provides. Um, and again, we really would encourage you to, to go look at it, um, do a little history on it. And it's really it's very fascinating as to how the founding fathers um, decided to, to use this system. And actually, it's worked really well over the years. Um, but it's just something we and it, it's something that's going to impact us all because the presidential election is, is around the corner. And certainly that impacts us as well, um, just as a, our society. So. Hopefully that, that makes sense. Ian, I know you're gonna, you've got some ideas and thoughts as well, maybe on this, but you're going to lead us off in talking about the attorney-client relationship as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that uh, discussion of the recent decision. It's really fascinating that it was a 9-0 decision. It was not one that I expected to be 9-0. Um, but today's topic uh, is a little uh, less complicated than a U.S. Supreme Court issue. It's uh, just transitioning off of what we talked about during the last episode, which dealt with uh, a customer defaulting on uh, their obligations to you. Um, so the first thing that you have to do once a customer is defaulted and it's clear that you're not going to get any relief without uh, going to court is you need to uh, develop an attorney-client relationship. And we have uh, some clients that are brand new to our firm that uh, have never hired a lawyer before. Uh, we have other clients that uh, James in particular has been working with for years and years. Um, but your first step is uh, you need to hire a lawyer, uh, whether that's somebody you've used multiple times in the past 
for uh, somebody brand new uh, that you've never worked with because hopefully you've never had to. Um, once you uh, have started talking to a lawyer, there are a number of considerations that you need to make uh, before you actually hire that lawyer. And the first one I would tell you is how does that lawyer plan to bill you for their services? Um, we do it a variety of different ways at our law firm. Uh, we have some uh, clients that are on an hourly arrangement. Some cases uh, warrant what's called a contingency fee arrangement uh, where we uh, get paid a percentage of what we recover on behalf of our client. And then other situations, usually because of the dollar amount at issue and just trying to make things make sense for both our firm and our client, uh, warrant a flat fee. Um, and there's no one size fits all solution for that. Uh, and it's just something that you should talk through with uh, the lawyer that you're thinking about hiring to help you with your legal matter. Um, in addition to the billing arrangement, you need to make sure that you're hiring someone who knows how to handle your type of case. You might uh, have had a lawyer who helped draft your wills, and they were absolutely fantastic at estate planning. Um, but there's a chance that if that's all they do, they might not be the best person to go and file a lawsuit to try and recover um, money for you from one of your customers. Uh, now, some people have a wide practice area. We have a wide practice area. Um, but you just need to make sure that whoever you're talking to really knows about uh, your type of situation and can help you. Once you're comfortable with the lawyer, uh, you need to make sure that uh, you have a written contract with that lawyer and that you understand what it means. Uh, that keeps you from being surprised. And the attorney-client relationship is really soured if either uh, the lawyer or the client uh, feels like they're getting taken advantage of. So having a written agreement that spells everything out is uh, a really good idea. Um, once you have actually engaged your lawyer, uh, make sure you fill out any forms that they send you to fill out. Um, so one that we use a lot uh, for our construction clients uh, is a lien intake form. So this has basically uh, blanks that our client fills out with all the information that we're going to need to prepare and file a lien for them. That way, um, there's no question about uh, important dates or what work was done or anything like that. Um, so uh, just make sure that you're providing good and complete and uh, accurate information to your lawyers because that's going to make uh, everything run a lot more smoothly down the line. Um, James, what, uh, in addition to filling out any forms, what else should uh, you include whenever you're sending a litigation package to your lawyer? Yeah, that's a great question, Ian. And, and it really depends on the type of business, um, what, what, they, what the client does, right? Um, and sometimes you'll need a particular file or document from one client. You may not need it from the other, but uh, certainly it really depends on what kind of work it, you know, has uh, been looked at as far as the contract goes. Uh, some things you really almost always need. Obviously we need information about the debtor or the defendant, right? The other side, um, the opposing party, you know, their name, address, telephone number. Uh, a lot of times our clients have contracts with them. So they may have 
either the tax ID number or social security number or things like that. So if you've got a credit application, uh, subcontractor agreements or some kind of you know consulting agreement, whatever it may be uh, in a purchase order, we seeing that and getting that initial information about the opposing parties is really helpful because uh, that sort of gives us something to always give back to and look at um, if we need to do some research on them. Um, also, we, we tell our clients, if you've got documents that you believe to be important, then they're, they're going to be important for us to look at. So if, you, if you've got any sort of documents that you think, you know what, that really tells the story, then we need to include that. Um, so also thinking about the contract or credit application, copies of invoices um, is, is generally helpful. And thankfully today, given you know, electronics, it's a lot easier to send that than it used to be. Um, and like an aging report or a, uh, the current summary of the account showing maybe the aging, what's, you know, what's due, what, uh, total, you know, what's 30, 60, 90 day columns. Um, so that kind of stuff is, is really important. Uh, if you've got a, you know, if there are several contracts having to do with the work that you uh, were doing with the opposing party, uh, if there's a promissory note, those kinds of things, any kind of documents that you have that you think are important would really be important for us to look at. Um, so that, that helps a little bit. So, Ian, I know you've got some other ideas, too, about some other documents or, or information that we need to gather as well. Yeah, I think everything you just hit, those are things that uh, pretty much no matter the case, no matter what type of issue you're having, those are things that uh, you're going to need to send to your lawyer. Um, but depending on the case, there are some things that uh, a lawyer might need and you're going to want to think about including. And these are uh, communications between your company and the opposing party. Uh, these can take a wide variety of forms nowadays. Uh, we get text messages sometimes. Obviously, email is a huge way that people communicate. And then we still have a handful of clients that still uh, write a fair amount of letters to their customers. Um, but if you have communications that you've received from the opposing party, uh, those could be really, really important to your case. If, for instance, that opposing party, uh, if, you, if you text with your customers, and they've sent you a text message that says, uh, you know, hey, I know I owe you this money. I'm behind. I'm going to pay you on such and such a date. Um, well, if they don't honor that, they're going to have a hard time down the line arguing that uh, you're not entitled to be paid. They've already said in writing to you that you're owed the money. Um, and what we get a lot of times in collection cases is, is a defense that, um, either the work we did wasn't good or, um, you know, we didn't provide whatever service uh, is at issue. Um, and usually that's you know, a bogus defense. Um, but having something in writing where the other side has communicated to you that they acknowledge that they owe you the money, that is going to save you a lot of time and money uh, as you're trying to collect. Um, another important thing, depending on what kind of uh, business you're in, I'm thinking about uh really the construction context here uh, would be invoices and copies of checks where you've expended money for uh, whoever you're going after. So these could be invoices where you've paid suppliers, you've paid your own subcontractors, um, just evidencing that uh, not only have you not been paid, but you're also out money where you've expended money on this job uh, that you need to recover as well. Um, so what I would tell you is it's really, really important 
uh, particularly if you find yourself having to engage counsel multiple times a year on similar matters, uh, for you to develop uh, a checklist. And uh, we just talked about some of the things that you're going to want to send, like the aging report and the contract. Um, what I would tell you is this checklist is probably going to develop on its own. So if your practice is to just send your lawyer an aging report and every time you do that, they send you a list of other things that they need, then you ought to start putting those on your checklist. That way they're, you're eliminating back and forth between yourself and your lawyer in terms of them getting the information. It's really going to save you time and money if you know exactly what your lawyer needs and you give it to them every time, then the lawyer just gets to take what you send over and go to work. Um, now, there are certain cases that are not well suited for a checklist, um, but if uh, you have a relationship with a lawyer that's doing a lot of work for you, um, then I think you're going to uh, find that developing a checklist is uh, really beneficial. And it, it's beneficial not only to you and the lawyer that you're working with, but also to your company, because it could be a situation that you're planning to retire uh, in the next year or two. Um, so your replacement is going to want to have some idea of uh, what type of information needs to be sent out to get the legal process started. You know, maybe you're taking a several week vacation and somebody's going to be stepping in for you to handle some of your work, uh, having a checklist for them is just uh, a really good idea. Um, so what are some things, uh, obviously a checklist is a way to be really organized. What are some things that uh, you ought to avoid uh, whenever you're sending information to your lawyer? Yes, yeah, some good points there, Ian. And, 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 and it sort of goes back to, you know, work to so that you're not disorganized, right? So you want to avoid being disorganized. And I'll tell you a quick little story. I met with a client. I want to, I think it was the first part of this year. It's before the COVID stuff hit. And we've done work for them before. Really a great, great family business. And one of the owners came in and we met and, and talked about the, the issues. He didn't have any information with him, but he knew, you know, he knew the, the most of the information in his head. And so we talked about it. We met for about an hour and talked about it and tried to figure out, the, you know, to, to get as much of the details as he had. He's like, okay, when I get back, I, he said, my son, who also is taking a, lead, a major league uh, in the business, said, I'll get, you know, information from him and forward it to you. I was like, okay, great. So, you know, took all the notes down from our meeting. I followed back up with him that evening uh, by, by email, didn't hear anything. Called a couple of times, hadn't heard anything. Kept emailing, hadn't heard anything. Called, and for the life of me, it took me forever to get the information from him. And again, I think they're probably busy, which is a really good thing, right? But at the same time, uh, it they were so busy that they, it was hard for them to organize the information. Um, and it was not necessarily an easy transaction to organize, but they just you know trying to keep it organized makes it so much easier for the client, uh, obviously, but also for the attorney that they're hiring, um, that we can figure out what actually happened and, and be able to assemble the, the documents uh, and the information needed. Uh, that it just avoids the multiple calls and emails and that kind of stuff. Um, you, you, in doing that's what Ian said earlier, also you save yourself a lot of money and it's just straightforward, right? You just, you just It's like playing football, right? You just pass the ball over and the person takes off and they, they're running. Um, and I'll tell you something else is 
tell uh, all the story, right? Uh, your lawyer, whether it's us or whoever it is, they want your lawyer needs and wants to hear it all. So telling only part of the story uh, creates some some problems later on. Uh, so we we encourage our clients to tell it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that we can can deal with it. Right. Sometimes I ask our clients, and again, depending on the type of case it is, what's the worst thing that we're going to hear? What's the worst thing the other side is going to say? Um, and it may be about performance, about materials or whatever it may be, but, you know, performance of the contract or service or whatever it may be, but you want to know those things. Um, so again, trying to avoid, um, only telling part of the story or only giving part of the information. And, you know, we've, we've had clients and one comes to mind and really, really, really good people, great business. And he'll call us, call me up and he'll start throwing out names and facts and stuff and it's like i ought to know all about it and i'm like i have no idea what he's talking about and i have to slow him down and say okay hold up go back and tell me about those names again who are they and how does this relate to the circumstance just try to make sure that you because you're telling a narrative right so you make sure everybody understands what that narrative is um and then giving that information to your attorney um in in a organized manner or, or at least initially really saves time for everybody you know we can once we get the information typically we can start working on drafting whatever we need to do and and when we get the information uh, pretty much all of it up front right we, we may have some questions later go hey could you clarify this or could you um and can you give me this information i just realized i don't have this and it might be helpful when we when we start drafting it saves time not having to go back and forth or you wonder, okay, wait a minute, you know, do I have all the pieces? And so that really saves money for our clients too, which is, you know, obviously where we all want to be. Um, and it avoids having to redraft or modify uh, the documents that whatever it is that you're, that we're needing to draft. Um, so for example, let's say you've got a client or, or customer who owes you money. They've been non-responsive. You send it to us, we start drafting it and then they make a partial payment, right? Um, on the account, you need to make sure you tell us or whoever you've hired as an attorney. Um, we, we certainly would also tell you to encourage, just from a sake of um, continuity of communication, to maybe even say, "Hey, look, you know, I've hired so and so. You know, how about dealing with them?" Or if you if you feel like accepting the payment is the best thing to do, to do that, but then make sure we're kept in the loop because it just makes it easier. Plus, you don't want to file something with the court. Um, if you forget to tell your attorney that you got a partial payment or whatever it may be, or there's partial resolution to a claim, you know, later on you go, oops, yeah, I forgot to tell you that, um, you know, just helps everybody in that, in that respect. Um, so again, trying to make sure that you, you keep your attorney in the loop of communication if you're dealing with the customer. Um, and a lot of times once litigation starts, most of our clients, and I think probably across the board, the clients say, you know what, you take care of all the communication. So it just, it just makes it easier to have one pipeline of communication with the other side. Uh, and hopefully you can get it resolved even faster. So hopefully those things work. So, Ian, I know you've got some other ideas, to, uh, things to always think of or to, to, to be able to be most prepared. Talk to us about what your, your ideas are there. Right. Um, so what I would tell you first is, Anytime your lawyer sends you a draft, uh, whether it's a lawsuit or a demand letter um, that they're planning to send out, make sure you read it really, really carefully. 
I know that whenever something leaves our office, we've had a lawyer review it, a paralegal review it. Um, but those are still just human beings' eyes. And at the end of the day, we're relying on our clients for all of the factual information. So there's a chance that we misunderstood a fact or just that there's a typographical error. So we count on our clients as a, kind of a third set of eyes just to make sure that whatever we're about to send out uh, is correct and accurate. Uh, on that same line, make sure you're asking questions. If you receive a draft from your lawyer and it doesn't make sense to you, chances are it's not going to make any sense to anybody else. Um, so don't be afraid to ask questions. And if a number doesn't seem right or an allegation doesn't seem right, uh, just ask your lawyer for some clarity on that um, because uh, and chances are if we go through and clarify it to where at least our client understands it, uh, there's a better chance that uh, the opposing party and the court is going to be able to understand what uh, exactly has been alleged. And finally, I'd tell you, just make sure you're setting high standards for your lawyer. Uh, we are human beings, but uh, we also get paid well for what we do. So you need to make sure that uh, whenever you get a draft, it's right. Um, every now and again, a mistake is going to make its way to you. Um, but you shouldn't pay for a lawyer to fix their own mistakes. So uh, it doesn't have to be a confrontational thing, but I think uh, there's not a thing in the world wrong with a client who's received uh, a draft that has mistakes in it that need to be clarified that are the lawyer's fault, not the client's fault, for them to say, look, I'm not paying for you to fix this. Let's let's get it right. Let's get it out. Let's move on. Um, but uh, you certainly don't need to pay for a lawyer to uh, go through and and correct their own errors. Um, hey, Ian, let me let me just add in that real quick. I, I think you got a great point. Uh, at least I'm going to say this for for our office, right? And everything you just said is 100 right. Uh, and we try to make sure that the billing matches that theory. That is, if we've made a mistake or if something that we need to correct on our end, we shouldn't be billing our client for it. But if we do, that we certainly number one don't mean to, and number two, we're human let us know and we'll get it we'll get that even fixed right we'll get it corrected um we try not to do that but it, i mean like i say we're human right and the other thing is when we all deal with each other with humans having some forgiveness and grace really does help right um a lot across the board but it's just an idea but anyway good good yeah, point absolutely i think that holding your lawyer to a high standard both in terms of their work product and their billing practice is very important you're entitled to do that um, but it all works better if, if we do have some grace for one another and uh, just embrace the human relationship that really is the attorney-client relationship. Um, so I hope that was helpful in terms of uh, getting the litigation package to your lawyer, uh, really starting with hiring your lawyer all the way through uh, just some things to look out for uh, as you're getting information to your lawyer. Uh, we've got a couple of questions of the week. Uh, they really uh, relate to one another. Um, so the first one uh, that I've gotten from a couple of clients uh, over the last few weeks is, when is my case going to go to trial? And that really uh, relates to COVID. Um, we had a really big administrative calendar in Wake County the week of June the 29th. Um, it had probably hundreds of cases on it uh and i had several things myself on that calendar 
And I asked our trial court administrator during that session, I said, when can we expect civil jury trials to resume again? And of course, nobody really knows because we're dealing with a very fluid situation that is COVID. Uh, Numbers are going up, they're going down, they're kind of all over the place. Um, So what the TCA suggested to me is that we might see civil jury trials pick back up uh, in November or December of this year. Uh, But the general suggestion, both from the TCA and the judge that was presiding, was uh, you might want to think about 2021 if you don't want to have to move your date again. Um, So that's kind of the suggested date range for jury trials. Now, there is an option uh, for certain cases. Not every case is going to be well suited to this, uh, and the parties have to agree. Um, But if you want your case heard sooner, you might consider a bench trial where the case gets tried to the judge. The judge makes the legal decisions and the factual conclusions. Um, I think those trials are going to pick back up on the civil side. And one reason that the jury trials are going to be delayed, as far as we understand, is uh, there haven't been any uh, criminal jury trials either. And uh, certainly folks that are incarcerated and face criminal problems uh, tend to take priority over uh, civil disputes, which are generally over money. Um, so on that same token, I've gotten questions from clients, uh, well, what happens while we're waiting to go to trial? Um, and I think it really depends on how prepared you were for trial at the time your previous trial date got pushed back. Um, I know I had several cases that we were getting ready to go to trial and then COVID hit. Um, So all of our prep work was really completed. Uh, We were just waiting to go into the courtroom to try the case. Um, So there's not really a lot to do on those types of cases. And I'm not sure whether uh, this current situation is going to encourage or discourage settlement on cases that are ready for trial. Um, But really, uh, regardless of, I mean, obviously, if you weren't ready for trial, this might have been a blessing that you uh, get some more time to prepare. but if you were ready for trial, if all the discovery was completed, uh, you've got all your witnesses lined up, uh, if you don't want to wait until whenever the trial date uh, comes back around, working out some kind of a settlement is really your only option unless you're willing to just wait and see what happens. And Ian, just as a side note to that, and hopefully most of our cases uh, don't actually go to trial but we have a handful that do, um, but hopefully a lot of it we can resolve either by motions, summary judgment or something of that nature where we actually can get a judgment for you ahead of time uh, than actually actually going to trial. But you know, again, there's a handful of those that that, that uh, is applicable to, so we've got to figure that out going forward. But that's a good point, Ian. Thank you so much for leading us there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we hope that uh, this week's podcast was helpful. And if you have any questions that you'd like uh us to address and the questions for the week we're happy to uh take a stab at them just uh submit them to the email address that you'll see in the notes for this podcast